Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. We've got to make up for a short time. First thing I want to cover is the 18 pages have been reorganized. I think a lot of people on the phone have a copy of it. And I apologize for not doing this earlier, but it's much easier to use now, I think, because there's an index. The other thing I want to call everyone's attention to the box at the bottom of the index, uh, which reads date on memos is the date the memo was prepared. The reason for doing that is that consciously not updating the prices. In other words, if you let's just turn to page four to pick a page, you have Netflix, Walt Disney and Amazon. Those prices are as of October 21st, which is when we prepared those. Now, I guess the other way to do it would be to update them every week. But I think what makes more sense for the usefulness of these pages is the stock prices will be updated only when we have another quarter of financials. So if you're thinking about Netflix or you're thinking about Walt Disney, or you're thinking about Amazon, see what the current stock price is and compare that stock price to where it was, you know, in the third week of October. I think that for me, turning these things out and for you, all of you on the phone using them, that's really the way to think about it. The other thing that's kind of amusing is that I label all this stuff non-energy if you look up in the left-hand corner. But the problem is that there there's some energy companies here. So we're trying to figure out how to think about that. So for example, when you get to pages 9, 10, 11, and 12, rather than non-energy up in the left-hand column, you'll see energy. And uh, what we have here is four pages. The first is the very large companies, Exxon, Chevron, and Conoco, and then three midstream companies, and then three oil companies, and then three gas companies. Are there other upstream companies? I mean, other oil companies, oil upstream companies, or gas upstream companies, or or midstream companies that are worth a look? Yes, there are. But what the purpose of the 18 pages is, I didn't know this when we started putting these together, is to look to see where in our capital markets the cash flow is. And so we didn't think AT&T would necessarily be a good investment. But, you know, again, page six, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, are big companies, they compete with each other. It's interesting to see how they do from a free cash flow point of view. So if, if you're looking at another oil upstream oil company other than EOG and Magnolia and Permian, I encourage you to keep looking 
but you can definitely use, especially EOG and Magnolia. Permian is a very new company because it's a private company called Colgate, which had a great record, merged into an existing public company called Centennial, which wasn't that great, but it's a Colgate management running it. So we kind of anticipate they'll have very good performance going forward, but we can't know that. We'll have to see. Well, yeah, we'll see the next three or four quarters of results. But the thing that distinguishes EOG and Magnolia is they spend way less than half their cash flow in CapEx, and they both have increased their production eight, nine, ten percent, you know, which is really performing at a very, very, very high level. I normally comment a bit on oil pricing and gas pricing. Gas pricing is very weak. The problem is the associated gas from the Permian is outrunning the new LNG facilities, and it doesn't help that one of the existing LNG facilities, Freeport, had a, an event, some kind of fire explosion, and they've been out of business for six months. Hopefully, they'll come back on. They keep saying, they said they were going to come back on in December, and then they were going to come back on in January. Hopefully, they'll be back on in February. Then, uh, there are very few things that are more difficult to build or commission than an LNG train. And Golden Pass, which is an Exxon gutter project, will be coming on. Venture will be coming on. But these things are all subject to delay. And the gas from the Permian just keeps coming. To show you how much of an issue that is, the, the hub in West Texas is Waha. Waha has been trading for under a dollar some days when Henry Hub or, or, or Houston Chip Channel is like $4. So it, it's really a surplus of gas produced with the oil that's caused these weak gas prices. Now, gas, you know, I've talked in talking about commodity prices, I've talked about the difference between backwardation, where the current price is higher than the futures price, which makes no sense. In any futures contract, you, you, you should, be willing to pay more for delivery next year than today because you don't have to store it, you don't have to pay interest on a working capital line. And the oil market has been in backwardation, which hardly makes sense, and it's still backwardated. The gas market now is in contango. The current market, because of this weakness in gas storage, there was, for the first time in like years or so, there was an ad, a gas storage ad in January because the weather got so warm after the Christmas period. So what does it mean? We have some gas stocks here, Antero, EQT, and Chesapeake on page 12. They're all terrific companies. We helped start Antero. Uh, one of my colleagues sits on the board. I mean, these are very good companies. Will you get them cheaper later? Maybe. It's going to depend a bit on the, on the weather. And with that, I want to switch into macro issues. And as always, I want to, you know, turn most of this over, you know, at least the last 15 minutes to uh, Mike and Jason. I have our son's son, Max, our grandson, has been here. He doesn't have to go back to college till next week. So he's been here working. And Max and I are going to discuss something that we think is going to be a problem for the capital markets over the next couple of months. 
And the problem is the debt ceiling. We won't get into a lot of details. I'm, I'm sure most of the people on the phone are familiar with this issue. Yesterday, I went into Max and I said, Max, isn't there a solution here where the middle of the political spectrum, whether it be Democrats or Republicans, would be able to coalesce? And I said, isn't the way to think about this go back to the spending level in 2019, fiscal 2019, because the federal government's on a September 30 balance sheet, and, and basically work out a deal where the spending was adjusted in fiscal 23 from that 4,000-page bill that they passed just before Christmas, which I can't imagine that anyone read, which increased discretionary spending from the billion from a trillion seven to a trillion nine, which the House Republicans, which was basically an effort by about a dozen Republican senators to get to to try to address the debt ceiling crisis early by installing a higher level of spending because the 4,000 pages were, you know, all the work that they should have been doing in different committees. Of course, the House Republicans were outraged by that. So skip that, adjust fiscal 23 and fiscal 24 so it relates to 19, the, the year before COVID hit. The problem here is, uh, Max will cover this, but let's say that number is a trillion six to just pick a number, you know, significantly less than the trillion nine they agreed to. The problem is every time these debt ceilings have come up and they've been extended and they negotiate over discretionary spending, about half of his defense and about half of things other than defense. By discretionary, we mean not Social Security, not Medicare, not Medicaid. And, and so what I challenged Max was to see whether or not you could create a coalition in the middle to, to go back to that level. And the problem is defense. And with that, I'll turn it over to Max. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the gist of it. And I think specifically on defense, I think there's a big kind of divide here between what Washington's thinking right now and, and the rest of the population, where I think the rest of the population is very concerned about China, but Washington especially. So I was actually down at the Pentagon in December. And when you talk to basically anyone in the Pentagon about anything, whatever, whatever, the moment you say the word China, it's like, it's, it's like, Penguins, perk, and I, I don't even know what the, the, the analogy is, but I mean, it's just, I think when you, a bunch of these lawmakers are being constantly briefed on this and they're pretty terrified. So there's a broad coalition of what, whatever it is, 250 members or 300 members in the House, and then 70 senators in the Senate who really don't want to cut defense spending or are going to consistently push through higher defense spending. Um, we just saw that where Biden sent his basically budget proposal for the DOD. Um, it was like, I think it was $803 billion, something around there. Congress with Republicans, Democrats turned around and gave them $860 billion. So Congress is really out in front of this. And as Hunter was saying, of our deficit, which I think is around $1.7 right now, discretionary spending, which is a minority of government spending, but is $1.7 going to $1.9, half as of his defense, which really isn't going to go down in that big bunch of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, seems to be really where you have to take a stab at it. 
And I think it's not very clear what members really want what. I think there is that broad group of the, the 20 or however many is or the 20 who oppose McCarthy's nomination for so long that really want to go back to 2019 levels. And there's a whole bunch of people who, who don't want to do that. So I, I guess the point being is I don't really know how this plays out. I know that we're going to hit the debt limit, I think, tomorrow from what's being said. And then they can do all sorts of financial maneuvering that basically lasts till June so that we don't default. But I know there there was a report in, in the media the other day that a lot of these GOP members that are farther to the right basically just said to McCarthy as part of the concessions that he made, we just want to hit the, hit the limit. And just suddenly the government can't spend $1.7 trillion or whatever yeah. it was. And just keep DOD, keep Social Security, and just I don't even know what happens. I think the point here, before we get on to uh, Mike and Jason's part of this conversation, is that if you if you went into 23 with three or four positions that you wanted to add to or two or three new positions given the amount of well the, the extreme difficulty of trying to create some kind of a solution to this debt stealing it probably would be wise to not commit more than half of the money you want to commit to add to positions or acquire new positions because the capital markets hate uncertainty and this could really weigh on capital markets not only in this country but on a worldwide basis and if you start to get into a, a confidence issue and the rhetoric you know it goes up you know it's it's it it, it can't be a positive for the equity markets. And so the thing to do is to probably be a bit cautious as we as we get further into 23. Uh, with that, let's see if Mike or Jason, do you have anything to add on on uh, in trying to plot what you're trying to do with Topmark to uh, my comments or, or Max's? I just echo what you said, tread, tread kind of lightly on your way in and just keep watching and following the companies you like because they might get cheaper than you think they will. Jason put in a dozen years working for the government. Anything from that particular part of your life, Jason? No, we were all defense spend, so uh, we kind of always had our money except for a period of time in the, I think it was around 2012, 2013. And it, and that triggered a, a large brain drain from the uh, intelligence community because a lot of people there could get paid significantly more in Silicon Valley than the government was paying, even though maybe the work was less rewarding. So I hope that doesn't happen again. Right. We can't go on without talking about open AI. Let me, as the person who's going to go out feet first, never sending an email or a text, lead off. I think it, the program or the the service, whatever you want to call it, became available in October, but I think it was gained a lot more following in December. I'm a long-term Google stockholder. I think Max and his accounts, I think his largest holding is Google. And so one of the things we were focused on as Max spent a couple of weeks here is what does this mean? And we were we were kind of coming around to thinking that Microsoft as the backer of open AI of being able to use this if it really was a breakthrough because a lot of tech people said my goodness this is a once a decade or once every two decades kind of thing what I think now 
it's kind of run its course. It is very interesting and lots of people fool with it. Uh, maybe some school kids are going to get a first draft of their term papers from using the chat software. But it seems to me it's kind of run its course because, uh, like, for example, I was talking to a person this morning who said, oh, I thought I have to write my investor letter, my end of the year investor letter. So I decided to see what, what it did. The problem is this particular set of language doesn't extend beyond year end 21. So instead it was, it was already a year out of date. But over to you, Jason, you're our, you're our, I think Mike, Mike and I would agree, you're, you're further along on this than we are. What's your prediction over the next few months of, of how this impacts how people make business decisions or how investors make uh, decisions to buy or sell stocks? Yeah, I don't see a lot of impact in in those cases because like you said it's it's these models are always, you know, in this case over a year behind. There is one application where GPT-3 is already in use and it's been commercialized by Microsoft. It's a it's a product called Copilot that they sell through GitHub, which is one of the companies they've acquired in the last few years. Um, and what it does is helps uh, software engineers write code. Because you can you can think about you know a, a software language as as kind of a spoken language, but it doesn't change, and you don't need a lot of updates going forward. So, what it does is is as you're writing um, you know software functions, you might name it something like calculate IRR, and you give it some inputs like start and end dates and prices. And instead of writing all the code that actually does the calculation, you'll ask Copilot to do it, and it can go. You know, it's been trained on people that have written similar functions and it'll give you a suggestion of code that runs that function. Do you want to accept it or not? And then you can always just like chat GPT, you can go in and, and edit as you need. But I think we'll see applications like that. Microsoft is definitely targeting releasing releasing chat GPT products throughout their, their office lineup. So it'll be interesting to see what what uses they come up with for it, but that's one they have in today. And they sell that for $10 a month subscription. One of the things we've heard actually through Brian R, as we call him, uh, Max's father has a personal relationship with someone who works at Microsoft looking after some of these products. And the edict came down very early that don't propose using this unless you have a revenue model where you can show that you can charge more per month. So the good news is uh, Microsoft is on page two and it's not cheap. It's trading in the you know, 230, 240 range. It's trading at 30 times free cash flow. That's a 3% free cash yield. It's got a fantastic balance sheet, it has effectively no debt. In terms of recent results, it's a June 30 fiscal year for the first three months. It had 10% sales growth, only about 3% free cash growth. I guess, you know, we talk about the shadow of this controversy that's going to go on about the debt ceiling, uh, make everyone, including the capital markets, very nervous. Will they be able to maintain that $60 billion of free cash flow? I think so. Will they be able to grow that free cash flow? 10% a year with a little assist more as time goes on from having kind of some kind of exclusivity with the open AI 
I think uh, rather than try to answer that question, I'm going to turn it over to Mike. I know, I can't remember, well, I don't know whether Mike and Jason and their partnership have owned Microsoft already or have a significant position in it, but Mike, how would you, how would you make that judgment at this point? Yeah, I, I kind of echo what Jason's saying about the GitHub product should probably tell us a lot about what's going to happen in the Office product. And so I'm happy to hear that it's probably going to be incremental revenue on top of their Office product. It's probably going to be very pointed product application and less broad like the current chat, chat GPT product is. From a cash flow perspective, that should be additive. And then what kind of gave me security in what Microsoft was doing with OpenAI initially is that this is very, assuming this technology is useful for more than just playing with, which is kind of the the, the purpose of the OpenAI product currently, assuming it's more applicable and more practical and useful like this, like more like the, the GitHub product, it's going to be additive to the overall Microsoft Office ecosystem. And as Microsoft Office goes, so goes Microsoft. So it would otherwise be an opportunity for Google or someone else to really step ahead and give people a reason to switch off of their traditional Office products. So I think this will build in some additional competitive advantages versus other things out there. And to answer your question, we do we do have actually a full position in Microsoft. I can't help because I, I read the email traffic just because I don't send emails so doesn't mean I don't read it all. I've seen a bunch of email traffic back and forth on NVIDIA, especially how much how much NVIDIA product they're gonna need to be active, whether they're Microsoft, you know, Azure buying GPUs or or someone else or NVIDIA, I gather can in effect offer to a privately owned GPUs. Now NVIDIA, of course, the GPUs are probably going to be hurt a bit by cryptocurrency being down, a bit of a slowdown in games and whatnot. But why don't we, why don't we try Jason first and then Mike on uh, the overall impact on NVIDIA? Yeah, we, we still like NVIDIA. Amazon and Microsoft and Google all have huge plans for CapEx spending in the cloud still. I don't believe they've scaled that back, even though... Um, you know, they're going through layoffs and, and that kind of thing. And as of today, the, the CUDA mode still exists. So if you want to train a lot of these algorithms, you're training them on NVIDIA chips specifically. And until that breaks down, I think we're, you know, we're still bullish on, on NVIDIA. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I just add that uh, NVIDIA may have some bad quarters here, but their leadership is still pretty distinct. There, there, there are some really cool startups in the space doing some really interesting stuff. But when you look at the big picture and the way that software developers are ultimately going to start using artificial intelligence as a tool to help them write better and more useful software, there's no easier way to get up and started today than using NVIDIA's products and specifically the CUDA libraries. Those who have been attending these Wednesday calls are familiar with Mike and Jason saying that NVIDIA is not just designing the chips and having Taiwan Semiconductor or Samsung make them for them, but it is also the software that goes with the chips and which 
gives NVIDIA an advantage. So AMD is trying to make GPUs, Intel, part of their recovery plans to make GPUs, but have an awful lot of catching up to do because the software is so widely accepted. And uh, that's that's a non-technical person making that point. So I have to add, like adjacent, say if I've misstated or overstated anything in that assessment of the importance of software in NVIDIA. Not not at all. There, I think I believe Mike saw that they have more software engineers than hardware engineers now. Is that true? That's correct. So I, from from what's happening in the market, we should expect that AMD's GPU sales should be hit very hard. It seems like their CPU sales have done extraordinarily well. That's really helped the company a lot. Obviously, taking share from Intel, so it does make it look like. I mean, the reality is. It, NVIDIA is having a, a tough couple of quarters. The question is, how long will it take them to work through this inventory? And how quickly does data center growth grow in the in the coming years? Yeah, and I would add, if you listen to interviews um, from NVIDIA's uh, CEO, he likes to say that they're not selling GPUs anymore. They're selling data centers and they're, they're selling supercomputers. So really, it's collections of GPUs, CPUs, all the infrastructure to hook them together and the software to run it. I just had a question for you guys about NVIDIA, AMD, and Intel. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, from what I understand, the reason why AMD has been able to catch up so much is that they closed, if not surpassed, the technological gap between their hardware and Intel's hardware with CPUs. Is, does, is the NVIDIA lead in GPU somehow different than Intel's with CPUs? Is there a way in which somehow they slip up for a few innovative cycles and AMD is able to catch up and all of a sudden they're bleeding market share, even though I think Intel still spends way more on R&D than an AMD. Is that moat somehow different? It is. It is. So in, in the case of AMD and Intel, it's very much a, a hardware advantage that they have. And on the GPU side between AMD and NVIDIA, it's it's that software that's the difference. So all the all of these machine learning and AI libraries that that we're talking about in these calls, they're all relying on on NVIDIA's software. And thus that has to run on NVIDIA's hardware. I guess that software gap is harder to close than what AMD did with with CPUs, I guess. That's correct. And on, on the machine learning side, especially, on the gaming front, there's incentive within the industry that everything's kind of platform compatible. It, it tends to be that AMD's drivers lag NVIDIA's, but eventually catch up. So if you're, if you're casual or active gamer, you can definitely buy a cheaper equivalent power GPU from AMD. But if you're doing any sort of development work on it, you're going to buy the NVIDIA one. And I keep asking, we're close to a close here. I keep asking Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of Intel, it's such a great story. I mean, he grew up in central Pennsylvania, farming family. He had four sons ahead of him, so he wasn't going to inherit a farm. He went to a community college since he wasn't going to inherit one of the family's farms. He was somehow recruited by Intel. He'd never been on an airplane before. They gave him an airplane ticket to come to uh, California. Uh, He was interviewed there and put to work, I guess, in one of their fabs. And within a couple of years, oh, 
he finished college at night at the University of San Francisco. He did so well at night school that Stanford offered him a PhD in computer science entirely free. By that time, Andy Grove, who was the CEO of Intel, became aware of him and went to him and said, I'll make you a better offer. If you stay here, you'll be a vice president in charge of chip design by the time you're 30. And so Gelsinger stayed and became one of Andy Grove's lieutenants. The Intel board decided that Gelsinger was not the person to run the company. And they appointed a marketing guy and that didn't work. And then they appointed a financial guy that that didn't work. When Gelsinger was available, Michael Dell, who was one of the Intel's largest customers, hired Gelsinger to run their VMware stuff, which was a huge success. And then the Intel board, realizing that they'd made a mistake, went back to Michael Dell to get permission to add Gelsinger to the board. At Gelsinger's second Intel board meeting, the board unanimously made him the CEO. I mean, with a story like that, how can you not expect Intel to somehow as, as you know, close, you know, try to reduce the gap that they clearly has opened up with AMD? I keep repeating that story because it's a great story to uh, Mike and Jason. And Mike and Jason, even though the stock is yielding five or six percent, they believe Intel's so far behind that if they had a position in Intel, they would be short the stock, even at a five or six percent yield. There's that kind of a gap with AMD. So, you know, we'll keep Intel on page three, but despite this great story of Pat Gelsinger coming back to save Intel, so far I can't get Mike or Jason interested at all, except to say Intel's still got, you know, still got big problems. With that, we're well over the, the 30 minutes. Everyone stay healthy and be well, and uh, we'll be back on next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice you should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.